Well, thank you, Angela, and uh, I really encourage you to have your, um, your Bible open in Daniel chapter 1 as we begin this, this journey in a new book. Let's see if we can get our slide up there. Right, there's a title for you, Living Faithfully in Babylon, Living Faithfully in Babylon. In my last series that I did with you, I repeatedly asked you the question, who are you? Who are you? The question that I want to ask you at the start of this series is, where do you live? Where do you live? Now, you might turn around and say, well, I I live in Bustleton, or I live in Perth, or I live on the other side of the country. Oh, no, that can't be. The borders are closed. But actually, according to the Bible, you live where? You live in Babylon. You live in Babylon. What do I mean? You've got your Bible open. Have a look at verse 1. I'm not sure if I've got it there. No. Um, have a look at verse 1. Daniel is living in a physical place called Babylon. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, uh, king of Babylon, he comes to Jerusalem. He besieges it. Verse 2, he carries off the temples, uh, the temple treasures, puts them in the, in the temple of his God. Uh, notice verse 6, um, and, uh, he carries off uh, various young men of the royal family. Verse 6, including Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are living in a physical place called Babylon. Let me show you something in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13. Listen to what Peter says. This is New Testament. He's in Rome and he says this. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Can you see that Peter is equating Rome with whom? With Babylon. And then in the book of Revelation, The Apostle John repeatedly refers to the world as Babylon. I'll just give you one example. Revelation 17 verse 5. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I've made up a new word. Where do you live? You live in Barcelona. You live in Barcelona. You live in Babylon. It would be correct for me to say to you this morning that I live at 2 Kerno Place, Barcelona, Babylon. We're living in Babylon, brothers and sisters. We're living in a world that is directly opposed to the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead and sits now in supreme authority at the right hand of the Father. And so right at the start of this series, as we come into Daniel chapter 1, I do want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that we are living as exiles in Babylon, and therefore this is not our home, is it? This is not our home. Have a look at Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, where the Apostle Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The 19th of May, 2020, was a very happy day for the Collier family. You know why? Because we got our Australian citizenship. And it wasn't so long ago, on the 26th of January, Australia Day, there were many other excited people that suddenly got their citizenship of Australia. But where is our citizenship? 
If we are exiles in Babylon, where's our home? It's heaven. And we're awaiting a Savior from? From there. Now, when it comes to Christians living in Babylon, there are a number of responses that Christians can make. Here's one common response of Christians. is to retreat. Christians know that they've been saved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, but we're, 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 we're in the kingdom, and, 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 but we still live in the world, don't we? But as Christians start to realize they've been saved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, they want to run for the hills, so to speak. They, they go in retreat. Uh, Christians can disassociate themselves as much as they can from the world, a little bit like the Amish community does. In this sort of retreating, isolated mindset, you then have as few touchstones with the world as you can. That's one response of Christians. Another response of Christians when it comes to Babylon is to fight the beast. Fight the beast. Now, if you read Revelation, sometimes Babylon is actually called the beast. So what happens here is that Christians want to make this world the kingdom of Christ. You know, thy kingdom... Thy kingdom come. So we'll try and make this world the kingdom of Christ. And usually the way that Christians do that is to take up the sword in the form of politics, particularly if you live in a democratic country. So you pick up the political sword and you try and fight to try and keep this place something of a Christian country. A third and very common response of Christians living in Babylon is to compromise. It's to play the harlot with the beast, if I can use Babylonian revelational terms. So what happens here is that as the culture, the, the unchristian demonic culture puts pressure on Christians and churches, Christians and churches capitulate into compromise. And this can happen at all sorts of levels. It happens at the doctrinal level. It can happen at the practical. It happens at the theological. It happens at the moral. So, for example, as Christians, we believe in the virgin birth, but the, the, the culture doesn't like the virgin birth. They don't like the miracles of Jesus. They don't like the resurrection of Jesus. They don't like to hear that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. So Christians uh, dumb it down. They don't say much, maybe even go to a point of denying it. But perhaps the compromise with the culture is no more clearly seen than in the realm of sexual ethics. So what happens is the culture comes under, under the demonic pressure of the sexual beast. And the church and Christians embrace the ethic in compromise with the world. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. But a fourth response, and the response that the book of Daniel wants to help us with, is that as Christians living in Babylon or Barcelona, is that we are to live faithful and godly lives. As we live in Babylon, we are to live faithfully. And is it not true that you want to hear the words of your Lord at the end of days? Well done, my good and faithful servant. We are to live faithfully in Babylon. And I want to show you this from Daniel and connect it into Jeremiah because this is absolutely wonderful. I'll come to Jeremiah chapter four and uh, um, 
Jeremiah 29 verse 4 in just a moment. Jeremiah 29 is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon. They've been taken off by Nebuchadnezzar. They're in exile. They've gone across. The prophet Jeremiah writes them a letter. And, and as Jeremiah writes this letter, Daniel and co, Daniel and friends, they would have got this letter. They would have read this letter. Listen to what Jeremiah says to the exiles in Babylon. Listen to this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those, Daniel and friends, that I carried, that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what you do. Build houses in Babylon. Settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Verse 7, and also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, Babylon, to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Do you see it? Jeremiah says to the exiles like Daniel, settle down in Babylon. Live there. Bless it. Bless it. Pray for it. Because if it prospers, you prosper as well. And I'm going to unpack this for you this morning. But I want to start here by asking you this. Are we praying for Babylon? Are we truly praying for Babylon? Are we truly praying for our country? Are we praying for our leaders that God has put into place? Or are we fighting it all the time? Are we bashing it? I want to say to you, honestly, in the last couple of weeks... Uh, it, 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 I, I've been so struck by Christians, and as I say this to you, I talk about myself. I've been so struck by how Christians can speak so ungodly about their leaders. Our premier is called a muppet and an idiot. Our prime minister is called a psycho. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It's a remarkable thing that if you flicked over to Daniel chapter 6, you'll find out that Daniel was a man that prayed three times a day. You can be absolutely sure that part of his praying was Daniel praying for the authorities and the leaders. He was praying for King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a thoroughly pagan king. You see, here's how 1 Peter reflects on it. Chapter 2, verse 16, Peter says to Christians, he's writing to exiles in Babylon. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers Fear God, what comes next? Honor the emperor. Honor the king. Honor those in authority over you. We are to live faithfully in Babylon. And one of the ways in which we do that is we pray for it. We pray for it. And we bring our country, we bring our world before our Lord in heaven. Second, and a very important related 
point to the first is you live in Babylon and God has put you into Babylon. Look at verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of his God. Who put Israel into exile? It was God. Now, why exactly God put Israel into exile, we'll understand a little bit more deeply in Daniel chapter 9 when we get there. But Daniel understood that God had put him and his companions and the other Israelites into Babylon. Take a look at this. Just looking a little bit forward, Daniel chapter 4.30. Here's a comment by Nebuchadnezzar himself. He says this. He has this sort of moment of grandeur. And he says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Uh, actually, no, Nebi. No. God gave Israel into your hands. God put Israel into exile. God gave you the kingdoms of this world. Here's the sovereign reality check. It is God who put Israel into exile. It is God who put Daniel into exile. But if you've got your Bible and you read the story, the, 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 the details are very distressing, aren't they? It's very obvious that when Daniel and co. were taken into exile, they were young men. They were probably age 14 or 15, maybe slightly older. And we know that because if you look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 21, we know that Daniel stayed in Babylon till when? To at least until the end of Cyrus, which is around 70 years later. You've got four teenagers and many others. They rip from their home, they rip from their land, they rip from their families, they rip from their friends, they're under the godless destructive forces of the Babylonian king. We can't be absolutely sure, but it's very possible that Daniel and co. were emasculated, that they were made eunuchs in the court. And as you're about to see, they started to suffer the deconstruction of their faith, their family heritage, and their education. It's was God's will that they were there. But let me add one more dimension here. Daniel and company were godly young men. They were not part of the apostate Israel that had actually caused the Babylonian exile in the first place. Daniel and co., they had clearly come from godly backgrounds. They probably had godly parents. They were God-fearing men who worshipped the true and the living God. So with Daniel and co. in, in exile, they, they know that God has placed them, and they know that the circumstances that are happening to them, they are somehow part of God's will. God is permitting it. God is allowing it, whatever word that you want to use. You see, these godly men, these godly men had come to the point very early in their lives, the same point as Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Remember that? Joseph reveals himself to his brothers after his ordeal, and he says to them this. He says, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for, for good. Now, I want to say something to you this morning that is so important to understand. Even if, experiencing God, even if experiencing evil is part of God's will for us, even if experiencing evil is part of God's will for us, that does not make God evil. 
that does not make God the author of evil. He cannot do evil. He cannot be tempted by evil. There is no darkness in God at all. So if we experience evil as part of God's will, it, it, it doesn't make God evil, but it also does not diminish the evil that was done to us. It doesn't diminish the evil deeds that were done to us. God gave faithful Daniel into exile, placed him there. He has placed us in Babylon wherever we are, and the circumstances that are happening in and around us are according to God's will. And never forget that the Father gave his sinless Son into the hands of evil men for our good and for our salvation. God will and does judge Babylon for its evil. We'll see that in the book. But I think Daniel and friends have got this perspective of Job, don't they? The Lord gives and the Lord takes. And it's, it's not just in the political realm. It's in the very personal details of our lives that the Lord gives and the Lord takes. And I want to show you something that is so, so wonderful. Have a look at this with me in Job chapter 1. And you, you'll remember with Job, don't you, that he experienced the gut Wrenching. He had the gut wrenching experience of, of, of losing 10 children in a day and, and losing all his wealth. And listen to what he says after that happened. At this, Job got up, he tore his robe, shaved his head, he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. But verse 22 is critical. Look at what he says. It says, In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Do you see it? Do you see it? God, Job did not charge God with evil. Same thing again. Next chapter, chapter 2. Job has now experienced the, 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 the loss of his health. And you might remember he had boils and skin disease and the whole trip. And, and after all that's happened, listen to what his wife says to him. His wife says, well, are you still maintaining your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? And look what he says to her. He says, you're talking like a foolish woman. You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, Job did not. Sin in what he said. A faithful life in Babylon is, is a life that prays for the city. It's a life that prays for the world. It's a life that says the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be his name. The Apostle Paul had the same perspective, didn't he? Take a look at this in Philippians chapter 4. Apostle Paul sitting in jail, locked up for sharing the gospel. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Daniel 
Daniel knew as Joseph before him, as Job before him, as David before him, Daniel knew as our Lord Jesus Christ would know that the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be his name because in all things he works for the good of those who love him. He works good in all things for those who have been called according to his purpose. You live in Babylon. God has put you in Babylon. And you are to live faithfully in Babylon. Let's open that up a little bit more under my third heading for you this morning. I nearly called it Daniel's diet, but uh, I decided to call it Daniel's denial. So here you've got Daniel and co. They're in exile. They're there by God's hand. They're under the most distressing circumstances that you can imagine. And their deconstruction is about to involve three things. Look at verse 7. They are given new names. They are named after Babylonian gods. They are to be, verse 4, they are to be re-educated in all the Babylonian wisdom and knowledge. And notice in verse 5 that they're given a new diet. Now understand something about Nebuchadnezzar. He's no fool. Nebuchadnezzar understands that if he, he understands that if he's going, if he can recalibrate the finest and the youngest of the royal Jews, he understands that he'll be able to further his kingdom. He understands that he's possibly going to use them as the authorities over the Jewish people. But for Daniel and Co, the fear of the Lord was their wisdom. And they knew that God had placed them there. They knew they were not to retreat. They knew they were not to fight. But they also knew that they were not to what? They were not to compromise in living in Babylon. So have a look at verse 8. It's on the screen. It's a key verse in the chapter. So Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, I want you to notice something. Daniel does not object to the changing of his name. Daniel does not object to getting a new education. But he objects to the food and the drink that's going to be offered to him. Why? I'll tell you in just a moment. Let me tell you what it's not, though. This passage is not about you going on a new diet. This is not about uh, uh, this is not about becoming a vegan. It's not about becoming a teetotaler. It's not about becoming on a low calorie diet. Although maybe some of you need to do that. I don't know. Um, I mean, I was just having a look around. I mean, this passage has uh, has spawned some interesting things. If you'd like the Daniel plan plate, looks quite delicious, doesn't it? All sorts of things there. Just add water. You've got the Daniel fast. If you'd like that one. And my favorite is Daniel's diet, the 20-minute recipes. I'm not sure if it will go in an air fryer, but we'll, uh, I'll let you know. Here's the thing. Changing a name is external. It's an external thing. I mean, Daniel is Daniel, right? You can call Daniel Belteshazzar. He's still Daniel. 
When it comes to the Babylonian education, all that he does is he filters his education through the biblical word. All he does is he takes his education and he pushes it through the law of the Lord. Now, that's what we're always supposed to do, aren't we? I say to any of you that are either have been or going to, Christian, uh, going to uni, that's what you're supposed to do. When they pump you full of the godless evolutionary nonsense and philosophy that they give you, you take that and you push it through the biblical word, through the biblical witness. But he takes his stand on the food. He takes his stand on the food and the drink that is offered to him. Why? We're not told exactly, but probably a number of factors combined. Number one, the food that was offered to him was in all likelihood offered to idols. And we know from the New Testament that, that although an idol is nothing, when you're offering something to an idol, you're actually offering it to a demon. So that would have been one factor. Another factor would have been that some of the food offered to him would have been unclean according to the Levitical laws. So they probably offered him lots of pork, which he wasn't allowed to eat. A third factor would have been that the food and the drink was often associated with gluttony and drunkenness in the Babylonian feasts. And so you put all that together in whatever form it comes, and that's where Daniel draws the line. That's where Daniel makes his stand. This was the compromise he wasn't willing to make. But if you've got the text, and I want you to see it, I want you to notice something important. He doesn't just refuse the food and the drink, does he? What does he do? He goes gently and he goes respectfully to Aspenaz, who's sort of the chief official. And he says, please, can I not defile myself in this way? And if you look at the text, you'll notice actually, although he was inclined towards Daniel because of God, he actually says no. He actually says no. Because he says, well, the king is going to have my head if you boys are looking a little skinny, not too far from now. But notice Daniel is persistent. So he, doesn't, he now goes to the, to, the, to the God under the chief and he says, hey, can we make a deal here? Can we sort, of sort something out? I'll tell you what, 10-day trial, water and veggies and see how we go and we'll go that way. What I want you to see is this. Daniel's not demanding anything. He's not fighting for anything. He's respectfully and gently going to those in authority and saying, please, please would you allow me not to defile myself in this way. Gentleness and respect. And again, I say this and I include myself. It seems like those two Christian virtues are somewhat lost in many Christian spaces and places. Gentleness and respect has lost. It's become about fighting and demanding and getting aggro and getting aggressive because we're not getting what we want. If you look at the text, look at verse 9 and notice that it's God. God who causes the, uh, the, the official to show sympathy. Even though he says no, there's, still, there's, there's God working. And, and, and it's clear that God grants the, the other chief under the big chief, grants uh, sort of favor to Daniel through him. And it's God, verse 17, that has given wisdom and knowledge to Daniel and co. It's God that has given Daniel uh, 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 the ability to interpret and understand dreams. It's God that's given Daniel that influence that he will have for at least the next 70 years over three different kings. Here's the point. God blessed Daniel's un.
compromising stand. God blessed it. God honored it. And that's the point. The encouragement for you and I as Christians living in Babylon, as we live faithful, uncompromising lives, God will, God does and will bless us. He will show you his favor. He will be honored and he will honor us. Now, as I say this to you, what it doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean that if you live a faithful, uncompromising life in Babylon, it doesn't mean that God is always going to bless you in some sort of material, physical way. Sometimes he will, and sometimes he won't. But your blessing comes from knowing what? That you're honoring God. That you're honoring your Father. That you're honoring the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the blessing comes from. We know that we're honoring, pleasing our God. Let me show it to you. Peter is sort of the New Testament equivalent of Daniel. And look at what uh, Peter says. Let me just read a couple of verses for you. 1 Peter 1 verse 12. Uh, that's not the right verse. I'll give it to you anyway. Here's what... Uh, I think it should be 2.12. Here's what Peter says. Live such good lives. I think it's 1 Peter 2.12. Live, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Have a look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are what? You're blessed. There it is. You suffer for doing what is right. You are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Daniel didn't. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Look at verse 17. For it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then one more in 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at this. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. Let me say again that when you stand for truth, Christian truth, the truth, and when you stand for God's moral righteousness, you are not always going to be blessed by the non-Christian world, but you are blessed by God. And the spirit of glory and the spirit of grace and the spirit of blessing is upon you. And I want to say to you this morning that sometimes when you stand for the truth and you stand for God's moral righteousness, it is going to cost you big. It's going to cost you. And when Daniel even respectfully and gently went to the, to the officials, he did not know what was going to happen. He did not know how they were going to respond. He did not know if they were going to lose his life. He was prepared for that cost. Just uh, flicking over, I think it's uh, Daniel. Um, Daniel chapter 3. Let me see if it's coming up. Yep. Uh, look. Take, take a look at this. I'll read it in just a moment. When you take a stand for the truth and you take a stand for moral righteousness, it, 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 it could cost you your job. 
It could cost you your pay increase. It could cost you your, your reputation. It could cost you your family. It could cost you your government funding. But take a look. Chapter 3, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. Here's what, here's what the, uh, Daniel and friends, well, particularly Daniel's friends, said to King Nebuchadnezzar when he told them to bow down and worship the image. He said, they said this, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, respect, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. As you will know, the Christian ethic that is savagely attacked today by Babylon is what? Is the sexual ethic, right? I've told you this before. If you want to go and look after the poor, if you want to go and look after the marginalized, if you want to go and respond to humanitarian crisis and stuff, the world will love you. They will applaud you. They'll even give you a Nobel Peace Prize. But when you stand up and say that homosexuality is a sin, when you say that sex before marriage is a sin, when you say that marriage is only for a man and a woman and therefore same-sex marriage is not according to God's design, when you say that changing your biological sex from one to the other is not God's design, when we say these things, and we are never to compromise on these things, the world will burn us in the fire. The world will throw us into the lion's den, as it were. But you remember our Lord, don't you? Our Lord Jesus never compromised with the evil and the wicked hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. And it cost him his life. But he was blessed by the Father, wasn't he? And he was raised from the dead to glorious new life. Exalted to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns. So I want to ask you a question this morning. It's a very personal question. What's the price of your compromise? What's the price of your compromise? What's the price of your Christian compromise? There are Christians who say they believe in the Bible, but they sit in churches where the truth is not taught. There are Christians that claim convictions about sin and convictions about punishment until that sin is committed by their children. Christians who want to speak out against dishonesty, they need to speak out against corruption until it affects their boss and they won't want to lose their job. Christians have high moral standards until their lusts are released from the bondage of a holy conscience. Then they enter all manner of unholy relationships and then they begin to rationalize their compromise. Christians that are honest just, just until a little dishonesty may give them more money and gain some sort of advantage. 
Christians who know that, 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 that something is wrong, they need to speak out, but for the sake of peace, they cover it. People know, Christians know that they should speak the truth, but they might lose some face. And so the compromise goes. What's the price of your compromise? Let me close up with this. The point is this. If you live for God, you do not compromise His truth. You do not compromise His moral righteousness. You are blessed. You are honored. And you are favored by God. The Spirit of glory rests on you. So number one, my brothers and sisters, you live in Babylon. God has placed you wherever you are, among whomever you live in Babylon. You are to faithfully live an uncompromising life as a witness wherever you are, wherever God has put you. Be faithful. Do not compromise. Honor your Lord. And you are and you will be blessed. I don't want there to be a hurried move off this morning. I'm going to ask the music team to join me. I'm going to ask the, uh, the music team to sing Blessed Be Your Name. They're going to sing that again. They're going to sing it to you. If you'd like to sit and just sing with, the words will come up. Perhaps you'd just like to just take a few minutes, just take a few moments, just think about the message. What is the Lord speaking to you? There are many of us here, maybe, maybe most of us here, that have or possibly are compromising in some way. Would you take the opportunity to put that before the Lord? Would you turn to Him in repentance? Would you ask Him for your forgiveness? Would you ask Him to give you that courage and that strength to make that stand, to say what needs to be said, whether that be in your home, that be with your spouse, that be at your job, be that on the sports field, be that in the government workplace, be that wherever that may be. That you ask the Lord to give you that courage. But when we make the stand and when we say what we've got to say and we have the opportunity to say it, it's done with gentleness and it's done with respect. Would you take a few moments to think about that and what's the price of your compromise? Maybe take a little time to pray. I'm going I'm to meet you at the door. Um, when you come out, take your time. Uh, tea and coffee will be served outside so that we can